Well, my name is Kevin Barra. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, um, I actually spend most of my time over at the Anderson campus. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. I get to oversee the youth ministry, and so I see some of my youth folks around here. Yeah, uh-huh. uh So I'm glad to be here this morning. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 10, double duty this morning. And uh, uh, I was assigned it, didn't choose it, but I'm thankful for it. Okay, so... You'll get your money's worth today. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 10. I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I have a beautiful wife named Hillary. She went to vet school here at A&M, which brought us to this wonderful town. Uh, and we have three kids. Um, I have a four-year-old daughter named Peyton. I have a three-year-old son named Micah. And I have an 18-month-old son named Jesse. And a little anecdote about my two sons. Uh, Micah, the three-year-old, is standing on the couch last Friday. So not this past Friday, but the Friday before that, with a wooden spatula in hand. And Jesse is below him on the couch. And Jesse stands there and swings the spatula across Jesse's forehead, gashing it open, blood everywhere on my daughter, on him, flowing down. And I thought to myself in that moment, I've entered a new stage, right? I mean, you hear stories about that. Like if you're, if you're like college dating someone, like we're going to get married, we're going to have kids, it's going to be great. Yeah, it will be. But there's these moments you've got to be ready for. So here's my encouragement to you. Be ready to plot with a rag the blood of your children. Like that's that's all I got there. All right, First Corinthians chapter eight. I'm going to read about six verses from uh, from chapter eight, and I'm going to read about six verses from chapter ten, and then we will dive in. It'll be fun. All right, First Corinthians chapter eight, starting verse one. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Jump over to chapter 10, verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers... That our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Let me pray one more time for us. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. And Lord, as we look at the reality of idols, I hope that you would open our hearts, I pray that you would open our hearts to the reality of our own idols. And Lord, as even as I, as I pray that prayer, I know many of us resist the reality of idols. We think that idols are just something out there and not something internal that we may struggle with ourselves. And so, Lord, I pray that you would guide my words, you would guide my thoughts, that they would not just be my words, they would be your words. 
and that you would open our hearts to the reality of the idols that all of us struggle with. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Well, when I was in high school, um, my family all journeyed to Colorado to visit my cousins because one of my, my oldest female cousin was getting married. And so we all get there, we all load up and go, and I'm from Houston, I'm from Flatland, and uh, the biggest hill I ever, you know, journeyed up in, you know, up to that point in my life was basically an overpass, right? If you're from Houston, you know, it's flat, overpass, that's it. And so we get there, and my uncle decides to take all of us out on this hiking trip, and, and uh, all except the bride. You stay back, the rest of us are going to go. And so we go, and I'm thinking to myself, this is awesome, I'm so strong, like I, I haven't been up a hill yet, but I'm... I'm young and virile, right? I'm going to be great up this, right? And so we go on the journey, and we start going, and what we're going to be doing is crossing um, pretty high up a peak. We're going to go over the top of the mountain, over to this beautiful area where there's, there's these beautiful lakes, and he's describing it to us, and I'm like, perfect, let's do this. And so our whole family gets in the line, and we start going up these switchbacks, and it's getting harder and harder, and it was uh, mid to late May. And by this time in mid to May, late May in Colorado, there's still snow on the ground. And we get to a point um, on the side of the mountain where my uncle looks back at me and he says, the trail goes this way across the face of the mountain. And we're, the trail, as you can see, is covered by snow. So what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to stomp my way through the face, across the face of this mountain, making a trail, and you just stomp in behind me and we'll be fine. And I'm like, let's do this. Like, I'm, I'm awesome. This is going to be great. And so we launch in, and it's my uncle, my female cousin Kim, and me, and we start launching in behind them. And by that time, my aunt, his wife, goes, uh, we're going to go the easy way, and they all take off behind me going a different way. And as I'm going across this, stomping one foot after another across the face of this mountain, I do something I shouldn't have done, but I did. I look down. And as I look down the side, what I see is a steep slope in which there is nothing to stop me other than the tree that happens to be sticking up or the rocks that will impale me, right? So that's what I'm seeing going forward, and I just freeze. And he looks at me, he goes, hey, you, you all right? I'm like, I guess, you know, and, and, and we just, we keep on going. And we go, th- go through, and we get to the, the top of this edge, and then we go over to the side, and he goes, yeah, yeah, the, the trail, we kind of got mixed up a little bit here, but, but here's where we need to go. We're going to climb over the side of this, and then just like kind of scale down this little wall, and then we'll be to where we need to be. And, and I look over the edge of this cliff, we're going to scale down, and it's sheer. Houston, sheer rock. He's like, yeah, we're just going to rock climb down it, down it. And I'm like, you're nuts. He goes, no, it's going to be easy. And he's like 55 or something. He's like, let's just do this. And he goes over the edge and starts climbing his way down. And I'm like, okay. And, and my female cousin goes next. And she goes down and she's fine. And then it's my turn. And so I get to the, to the edge of it and I go over it. And I'm like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. And I'm going down and suddenly I freeze. And they're like, hey, you all right? I'm like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just trying to find the, the footing um, over. And, and they're like, are, are you... Are you okay? I'm like, no. I'm not. I'm petrified. And they look at me and they go, all right, here's how to navigate your next steps. Put your foot down here, move your hand down here, put your foot down here, move your hand down here. And each step they led me down the way to where we wanted to be. But I tell you what, I was petrified. And the truth is this. 
on the journey of life, we all encounter moments where we think we're strong. But when we get into the middle of them, when we go along that journey, sometimes we reach rocky terrain. Sometimes we reach moments when we fear for our lives because we realize we're not as strong as we think. The reason I start there is because that's the issue that's going to be addressed by Paul in this section. And in this section, he introduces us into the idea of idols, of idolatry. And if we're honest with ourselves, when it comes to the idea of idols, every one of us would say this, I'm strong in that area. I don't have an issue with idols. But my hope is that as we journey through this section of Scripture, we'll see that, hey, maybe we're not as strong as we think we are. And he opens up, I'm going to lead us basically through three movements in this, in this talk, and that's this, that idols are everywhere. Secondly, we are not immune to idols. And thirdly, we need to flee from our idols. And it opens up, this section opens up actually with a question. And in chapter 8, verse 1, it says this, Now concerning food offered to idols. And what Paul is doing right now in chapters 7 through 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is, has received questions from the Corinthian church. They have issues that they're dealing with. And in this section, he's ish, dealing in chapters really 8 through 10 with the issue of idolatry. And in this moment, he's saying, okay, look, you deal with idols. And for most of us, we're like, okay, what does that even mean? And sometimes as you're reading through the Bible, there comes, you come to moments where there's descriptions that are so culturally specific that it's difficult to even know how to apply them. And we're in one of those sections. Thank you, Blake, for signing the the spot for me. But basically this, the reality is this, idols are everywhere. And in Corinth, they were everywhere. There was temple ruins like this currently in Corinth that you can go see where there was temples to false gods everywhere. And the way idols worked were this. To understand how to apply it, you've got to understand what he's actually talking about. The reality is idols were everywhere. And what would happen is a person would come with, with, a, with a sacrifice to an idol, to a, false, to a god. And they would come to that god and they would have a goat or a bull or something like that. They would kill it. And the way the meat was distributed was in one of three ways. One portion was burned up. So a portion of the meat was literally burnt up as an as a offering to the God. A second portion was given to the priest to kind of feed him. He could do whatever he wanted to with it. He could either do one or two things. He could feed himself, eat it, or he could take it to the marketplace and sell it to make some money. And then the third portion of the, of the sacrifice was given to the person who brought the sacrifice. And in this cultural scenario, what they're asking is this, okay, our world is, is covered with idols. And when it comes to the issue of meat, we don't know whether or not a particular meat we have has been sacrificed to an idol or not. And really, the Corinthians would come across the issue of meat in one of three scenarios. They would go to the marketplace to buy meat. And when they walked to the marketplace, there would be fresh meat cut there, and they would walk in, and they could purchase that meat to eat for themselves. A priest had sold it, or maybe a patron had sold the meat. And, and they, would, they would buy it there, but they didn't know how it got there. Was it offered to a false god? Or was it just someone that just slaughtered it and was feeding it? I mean, it's kind of like when you go to H-E-B. You don't really know where the meat came from, right? And so they wouldn't know. Or it, came, it could come in a second scenario where a friend would invite them over to their house. And they would invite them over for, for a meal. 
And there's evidence that outside of these temples, uh, well, they would go to the to a friend's house. They would maybe that friend was a believer, maybe not, and and that person would say, "Hey, come over for this party that I'm having. We're going to eat the meat because they didn't have a way to preserve the meat, so they would eat it in a party with a party quickly. So you didn't necessarily know how it was, what happened to it before that. Or there's a third context in which they might approach idols. Most of the Corinthians had come from an, an idolatrous background. They weren't, they weren't born Christians. Most of them came to faith in Christ when Paul preached there. And so often what would happen is, is, is they were part of a culture that had parties, social events surrounding the sacrifice. So there's evidence of some temples where they would offer the sacrifice and there would be rooms outside of the temple where this person that had offered it could invite all their buddies and just have a party. And so it basically, it was just a social gathering. It was a barbecue that all of them would be invited to. And so the question I think Paul is mainly addressing in chapters 8 and the first part of chapter 10 is this. When I get invited to a party at the temple, what do I do? How do I respond when I'm in that scenario? And the reality is idolatry was everywhere for them. But an idol was always a representation of something deeper. In fact, there was, there was a pantheon of gods in the Greek culture, and each god represented a need that that person wanted met. So there was the goddess of beauty, Aphrodite. And so if you didn't get a date, you wanted to get a man, you would go offer sacrifices to the goddess of Aphrodite, she would bless you with beauty, and then you would kind of go along and hopefully get a, get a mate, right? Or maybe you're going to war, right? And so there was literally a god of war, and you were unsure about how your prospects in that war would be, so you would go and offer sacrifices to Ares, the god of war, that, so that he would ensure your victory. Or maybe um, you wanted to get pregnant, having troubles, having difficulties. Well, there was a god for that. It was Artemis. So you'd go and offer sacrifices to the god, goddess Artemis, and, and maybe she would bless your womb and label you have a child. Or maybe you just wanted some more money, Right? So you would go to Artemis and you would offer sacrifices that she would bless you financially. Or maybe your craft wasn't going well. Maybe you were a potter and business wasn't going all that well for you. And so you would offer to the god, let me get his name right, Hephaestus, something like that, the god of craftsmanship. You Greek people can get with that later on, right? And so all an idol was, was a representation of a deeper need you wanted met. So you wanted success in life, you wanted satisfaction in life, you wanted, you wanted your life to go well. There was a God that you would sacrifice to, to give you the deeper desire of your heart. And as you look at the Bible, actually the idea of idolatry is much bigger than bowing down to a simple statue. The Bible actually blows up the idea of, of idolatry a lot larger. In Ezekiel 14, 1 through 3, God says this to Ezekiel, then certain elders of, the, of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me and said, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? You see what he says? There was these elders, this group of elders that had a need they want met by God. And so they came to Ezekiel and sat in front of him and said, look, we want God to meet our need. And what God said to Ezekiel is, look, they've set up idols in their heart. Wait a minute, I thought an idol was just a statue somewhere we sacrifice. No, 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 it's bigger than that. See, idols can be something 
that reflect your deepest heart desire. It's not just something out there. It's something in here. Puritan um, preacher David Clarkson said it this way. He says, there's external idolatry, which consists of a literal bowing down to a physical image. But there's also internal idolatry, which consists of an act of the soul. When the mind is most taken up with an object and the heart and affections are most set upon it, this is soul worship. And in the Old Testament, over and over and over again, this is the issue that is raised with idolatry. In Habakkuk 1.11, Habakkuk says of the Babylonian Empire, their God is their strength. In Jeremiah 2-3, the prophets charge Israel of idolatry because they set up treaties with the nation of Egypt and Assyria. They were afraid of war that was coming, and so instead of turning to God to save them and to protect them, to meet their need, they moved to Egypt and said, Egypt, will you give me safety? Will you give me security? Will you meet the deepest needs that I have? And see, the issue of idolatry is actually much bigger than just, am I worshiping a false god? The question is really this. What false god am I worshiping? Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, goes through this in a really helpful way. If you want to get more information, I encourage you to pick it up. And he says this, God was saying that the human heart takes good things, like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think that they can give us significance, security, safety, and fulfillment if we obtain them. Now I say that. I lay out the reality that idols are everywhere, but your response, I think, is most like the Corinthian response. And their response is this. I'm immune to idols. That doesn't affect me. And what they say specifically are really one of two things. And I think chapters 8 and chapters 10 and chapter 10 are really addressing this issue. And to say it simply, Paul is saying this. We think we're strong, but we're not as strong as we think. In chapter 8, I really think he's saying, look, we think we're strong. And in chapters 11, verse, or chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, he says, look, we are not as strong when it comes to the issue of idolatry as we think. And the first thing that he lays out in, in, in chapter 8, verse 1, is he says this, we think that we know better than to fall. And a lot of us believe this. If we have the right information, we'll make the right decision. If we know the right things, then we'll do the right thing. And in verse 4 of chapter 8, he lines out that the Corinthians actually know the right information. He says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, everyone knows this, that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed many gods are many idols, yet for us there is one God, the Father. And so when we talk about idols, we immediately go, okay, they're not real. This, this was brought forefront in, in my life when my wife went to China several years ago, and she went to one of the major Hindu ch- temples in China, a beautiful temple. And as she was going uh, to that temple, she was just kind of checking out, what, what is it like to go to these, these Hindu temples? And this one, she found out people would travel literally hundreds of miles all to this temple, and they would bring sacrifices of food to these gods. And so they would bring the food, and I kind of like lay before the God, and they would pray that, hey, you give me these things that I need, right? Because you're the God of that. 
And so they would go there, but here's the, here's the catch in it. They had monkeys. And so as they would be carrying the idol, or the, the sacrifice to the idol, the food to the idol, monkeys would attack the, pe- the people, right? And so they'd have to fend off the monkeys as they're bringing the food to the god, right? Now there's multiple problems with that I think that we can all see. First of all is this. If my god needs to eat food that I give them, you probably can't meet the problem that I'm really dealing with, right? And secondly, if you can't deal with the monkey problem, God, can you really deal with the big problem that I'm bringing you, right? Like, if you can't protect your own food, can you really deal with the deeper issue of health and other things that I'm going to bring to you? And so we would say, okay, Kevin, Kevin, when it comes to idolatry, we know, we know, those aren't real. But the problem that Paul lays out is this. You may think you know, but just because you may have the right information doesn't mean you're going to make the right decision. And you know this. So when it comes to diet, right, you know that if you eat soft and squishy, you will end up soft and squishy, right? If you eat raw and hard, you'll end up raw and hard, right? Like, we know that to be true. But how many of us, we're going to go to Thanksgiving in a couple days, people, and we're going to eat a lot of soft and squishy, not a lot of raw and hard, right? We're going to be like, I don't want that. Give me more of that pie. You know, that's how we're going to play, how it's going to play out, right? And we know this with exercise, right? We know that exercise reduces stress, gives you a better quality of life, gives you more energy. Like, we know that. And how many of us have gym memberships? And if that gym was only based on our attendance, it would be a dirty, dusty, cobweb-filled place because we've never been there. Or at least once final sits, we're definitely not showing up there, right? And we know this. Like, we know things to be true, but when it comes to our actions, we don't always do the right thing. And the Corinthians, they said, I have knowledge. And Paul says in chapter 8, verse 1, look, look, look. We know, but all, but all of us possess knowledge. All of us are brilliant, verse 1. But knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. See, knowledge can produce two things that he lines out here. Knowledge can produce arrogance, and knowledge can produce, secondly, selfishness. Knowledge doesn't mean you're going to make the right decisions. And we all know people that are brilliant, and they walk around with a knowledge bomb, right? So you have friends who are having this conversation, and they're just holding this little bomb of knowledge, right? And they're waiting for everyone to have their little share. And they're like, now it's time to ignite and launch the bomb of knowledge. Awesome knowledge, right? And we know that. We've all have friends like that. They just can't wait to say their part because they know that once they drop their knowledge bomb, all answers are going to be gone away and everyone's going to look at them. We know that knowledge produces arrogance. We've seen it. And that's true with them. But we also know this, that having the right information could just make us more selfish in what we choose to do. See, we can know the right things about God and use that knowledge to coat our decisions in God language. So I I, I hit this all the time with high school students. They ask me, should I go to the party? People are going to be there, and I will represent Jesus while everyone's drunk. And I go, okay... Um, what makes you think it's a good idea? Well, I'll represent Jesus while everyone's drunk. I'm like, okay, okay, yeah. yeah. So why do you want to go there? I'm just going to be a Christian there. I'm like, okay, look, 
Is the issue that you really want to represent Christ? Or do you really have an idol of acceptance and you're tired of telling them no on Friday night and sitting home alone? We're college students. Some of you are brilliant and you're going to be getting a career lined up and you're an engineer, you're in business, you're so smart, you've got all the things lined out and you're thinking to yourself, okay, what God wants me to do because he's blessed me with my brilliance is to make a lot of money and then I'll give some money to the church and I'll buy houses and it'll be awesome. Missionaries can go there and be really, really sweet and be like, okay, yeah, 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 maybe. Or is your idol really success and significance and status and you're going to use your brilliance for selfish ends? but you're going to cover it with godly language? Or for parents? I mean, you've got your kid, and you want your kid to succeed, and you want to give them all the opportunities you didn't have, and so you're going to get them into volleyball and into basketball, and you give them all the training that they need and, and all the support structures that they need, and you're going to push and push and push and make sure that they're successful and, and push, and, and that child has become your God. And kids make bad gods, right? They beat their brothers over the head. Like, they do not do what you want. They're not good gods. And the truth is this. The reality of many of our decisions is that we can just do what we want, and we're looking for a way for God to just let us do what we want. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. They said, look, we know an idol isn't anything. So I'm just going to go to the party. I'm going to go to the temple, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to eat the meat because I know it's not that big of a deal. I'm just going to participate in what everyone else is doing, and I'm fine. I'll be fine there. And Paul says, here's what you're missing. You are not an island of an, unto yourself. He says what knowledge, what true knowledge of God should do is to produce a love for God that produces a humility in you. And it should also produce a look to others to go, how can I help and serve and love them? What true knowledge should do should be one of self-sacrifice. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And he says, look, you've got your other brother in the room and they're watching you participate in all of this. And you know what? You're wrecking their faith because they can't tell the difference between what you're doing and their own issues that they're struggling with. You think you're strong. You think you're strong. But what you're really doing is using all of your knowledge to just cover up what you want to do anyway. I think that's us. I think a lot of us legitimize what we want to do because we think we're strong. But secondly, he addresses a second issue in chapter 10. And it's this. That we're not as strong as we think. In chapter 10, he actually opens up by talking about literally the nation of Israel and their experience. And for us, as we think about, okay, maybe I'm not, a, I'm not that strong. Maybe I don't know better. Maybe I don't always make the right decisions. But, but I'll tell you this. My experience has taught me better. I mean, isn't experience the best teacher, right? And I'm experienced, and so I'll make the right decision because I have all of this experience. But college students, you know that experience hasn't necessarily taught you anything, Right? So you know that, that you should study a little bit of an amount of time each moment before the test, and that way you won't be cramming on the day of the test, right? How's that playing out, right? Not that well, huh? Men, you know you can't fix anything, right? And if you're a man like my dad, he refuses to accept it, right? 
And so what will end up happening is a sink will break, and he'll go over to the sink, and he'll start piddling, right? And he'll start piddling, messing around. I love my dad. He's amazing at so many number of things. Not this, right? And he starts piddling, and then there's a hole in the wall, and there's a pipe issue, and larger, and he calls up the plumber. You've got to come fix this thing, and he watches him. And the next time comes around, it's the same issue, different sink. What does he do? I know better. I'll make the right decision this time. I'm experienced, so I'll make the right decisions. When it comes to idols and God, experience won't save you. Experience won't protect you. In fact, he lines out the experience that the nation of Israel had that is, was phenomenal, but it didn't protect them. He says, in, he says in chapter 10, verse 1, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's referencing the moment when Israel was saved out of Egypt. When literally God came to the people of Israel, saw them in bondage, rescued them out, and led them into freedom. And he said, look, they all passed through the sea. In fact, he parted the sea. They walked through it. And he says they ate manna from heaven. Literally, bread came down. They're eating. This is great. Quail. They ate all of the food. And then they got thirsty. And so they hit a rock and they drank from the rock. They had water. They had food. They had salvation. They had an amazing experience. In fact, the experience that you would all want. Verse 5, it says, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with them. Why? Verse 6, now these things took place to be examples to us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. And the truth is this, they still fell to idolatry. And the reason is this, because the right pressures cause everyone to crack. We are not as strong as we think. I was hiking uh, when I was in, um, in high school. We went with our church on this kind of trip, and they, there were some guides that were taking us in Enchanted Rock. And they're looking at this huge rock um, on the side, and he, and he points out these, these cracks in the rock, and he goes, hey, do you know how they got there? And I'm like, no, I'm 16. I have no clue how you got a crack in a rock. And he goes, a little drop of water landed in a small crack and froze and hardened and got that crack a little bit bigger. And then another water came in, froze, hardened, expanded that crack a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, until now you see the chasm. The right pressures cause everyone to crack. And there were four pressures that the nation of Israel faced. There was social pressure. There was sexual pressure. There was frustration. And there was unmet expectations. There was social pressure. When they first came down, um, it it says this, that they they made a a god and they rose up to play. They worshipped the god. And Aaron, when he was confronted by Moses in Exodus chapter 32, said, why did you make a golden calf and worship it? This is weird. I was bringing down the Ten Commandments. What's going on? He's like, the people, they all gave me gold. I threw it into the fire and this has popped out. Like, I don't know. know, And he caved. He caved to social pressure. And the same is true with you. I wish that I could say that all peer pressure ended in junior high, but it hasn't. And some of us, you put us in the wrong environment, you put us in the wrong pressures, we go on that business trip, and we cave, we fold like a lawn chair. Or it's sexual pressure. 
And I wish that the, the tired tale of, of a boss sleeping with a secretary or a secretary sleeping with a boss was just like, it's so old, it's so overdone, it doesn't happen anymore. But I've heard three stories of this, this year of that exact thing playing out. The right pressure causes everyone to crack. Or it's frustration. I mean, Israel, they're walking through, they're walking through the wilderness, he's guiding them, and then they, they, they don't like the food anymore, they don't like what God's provided, and they just get frustrated, and they're just like, well, let's get a new leader, let's get a, go a different way, this is not going how I want, just, ugh, they get frustrated. And they rebel against God. Or the last one is unmet expectations. They get to the edge of the promised land. God had led them this far, and he's about to open it up. They're about to enter into the promised land. Everything that had been building to this moment, they're ready to walk in, and several spies come back with a bad report, and they're afraid. And God, this is too hard. I don't want to go that route. This, is, this life isn't turning out how I want. And they fold. For all of us, each one of these represents the real idol of our heart. See, it's not God that we're worshiping. It's acceptance. It's not God that we're worshiping. It's our pleasure. It's not God that we're worshiping. It's our significance. It's, it's that God would, would, would pl- that our life would play out the way we wanted it to play. You know, it's that God would give us the desires of our heart that may or may not collide with him, but what I really want is a God who does what I want. See, we're not immune to idols. We think we're strong. But we're not as strong as we think. And so the last thing that Paul tells us to do is this. We all have idols. We have to flee from our idols. And what he says specifically in verse 12 is this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, that, which is common to man. God is faithful, and he is And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with each temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure underneath it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He says in first this, I want you to watch your step. I want you to watch where you're going because you think you're strong, but I'm sorry to tell you, you're not as strong as you think. And you can slip right in if you don't watch yourself. When I was about five years old, uh, my I went with my cousins uh, in Houston, and they were looking for houses to buy, right? And I'm there with my, my five-year-old cousin. He's my age, and we're hanging out, and they're all looking at houses, and we don't want to look at houses because we're five, right? And so we go out and play by the pond, by the lake. And so we go over to this pond, and it's a cement-sided pond that kind of goes down into the pond. And, and the cement, we didn't know this, but right along the water line is covered in algae and slippery. And so we're playing the game of how close can I get to the edge without going in, right? And so my cousin goes first, and he's dumb, right? And so he slips and falls into the water, right? And then he looks back, and he's trying to claw his way up, but it's covered in algae, and he can't move. He's like, Kevin, Kevin, help me. And I'm like, okay, I got this. I'm totally strong. This is awesome. And I walk over to him, and I grab his hand to pull him out, but I'm five. I can't pull him out. And he pulls me right in. And so we're both in the water and we're like freaking out like, oh, we're all going to drown. This is terrible. And so we're floating out into the middle of this pond. And then I see my uncle, um, my dad's brother, my different uncle, run, see us away. 
and start running toward us. Which is kind of funny because he was a large man with a big belly, right? So he's like, you know, like rumbling to us. <laughs> which is awesome. And he gets to us and then he, with his strong hand, he grabs my hand and pulls me out. And he grabs my cousin's hand and pulls me out. See, you're not strong enough to defeat the idols of your heart. There's only one who is. He is the one that's strong enough to save you from your situation and bring you into new life. See, we don't defeat the idols of our heart by saying, I'm just going to be stronger this time. You're not. I'm not. We need a Savior who is stronger than us to save us from the reality of the idols of our heart. And Jesus came to live the life he could not live. And he died the death he deserved to die. And every one of us struggles to have something else in front of God. But when you come to Jesus, he says, I'm going to free you from the clutch of your idols and show you how to walk in your life. I've got one more point to close, but we are going to celebrate communion this morning. So the men, would you please rise and, and prepare it? And as the, as the men are going, I, I want to give you one last thought in how to deal with our idols, how to flee. Because the truth is, we're going to find ourselves in many situations in life and not know how to navigate that terrain. But I think Paul gives us wisdom at the end of chapter 10 and verse 31. He says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so as you are walking through the decisions of your life, there is a new paradigm that you filter it through. Whether you eat or drink, whether you go to the party or don't go to the party, whether you hang out with that crew or not hang out with that crew, you filter everything through the glory of God. Is this for the glory of God or is this for mine? Will this bring me closer to Jesus or am I just fulfilling the needs of my heart? Am I walking in wisdom or am I just looking to be accepted by my peers? And you replace the idol with the Savior who's strong enough to save you. The men are going to come forward. And as, as they come forward, I, I want you to take a moment right now and think about what could be the idols of your heart. What are you holding up and saying, God, don't take this. Or really, all this work and everything is really about just making this happen. What are the idols of your heart? I'll leave some communion in a moment. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples. He told them as clearly as he could, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to die, and I'm going to die for you. I'm going to die for all the things that you've done wrong and all the things that you will do wrong. I'm here to offer myself wholly and fully for you. And he took a couple of the implements that were in front of him. He took the bread and he took the cup. And he, he said, he broke the bread and he said, look, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. After they'd finished, he then took the cup and said, this is my blood. This poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
we're going to respond in a song. I want you to take a moment and just say, Lord, these are the idols of our heart, my heart. These are the things that I'm chasing. And I want you to take a moment, if you're willing, to lift them up to God. That he might help you navigate through it. And when you're ready, would you stand and respond in song? Father, that is our prayer and that is our song. We want to crowd in you, Lord, of all of our lives. And Lord, we confess that sometimes we just need you to make our hearts believe. We don't believe that you are better than our idols. So Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to the reality of who you are, the God who came to us, who gave his life for us, that we might live a full life in you, walking with you for all eternity. So I lift up these these people to you, that you'd guide and protect them and hold them. It's in your precious name I lift up this morning to you. Amen. Amen. You have a great morning.